0: I'm going to ask you to bow your head and we're going to pray together. God, I pray as we continue to move into this series. Will you, Lord, allow for us to, as you would say, have ears to hear. Hear if you would. In a sense, say to your own spirit this morning, hear the Lord Jesus through his word. God, give us ears. Give me a voice to be able to, to speak forth your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So have you ever noticed that sometimes your natural instincts shouldn't be trusted? You know, in other words, it's, it's your first reactions may not be right. As you're in conversation maybe with someone you are married to or you're deeply close to a family and you kind of go, ooh reaction probably wasn't the right instinct, and you maybe check it or maybe you don't. There's examples that we have all throughout life, like driving a car in the winter and you hit ice, what's your first natural reaction? It's, it, it really is the kind of just put your foot on the brake as hard as you can, and I'm speaking especially to people here, okay, who who grew up before the auto industry realized the horrible first reaction mistake we make which is when you slam on the brakes your brakes lock and so they put in this clever thing called what anti-lock braking system on cars so that it actually stutters it so that you don't get into that natural reaction and slide all over the place now and some of you um you think of like a wet bar of soap and, and if you're in it, it's, it's really soft and, and you go to grab it, what happens when you go to squeeze it? It has the potential just to go flying out of your hands. And so, you know, the soap industry is really smart about this too, so they put together what is called an anti-slip. No, just kidding on that. <laughs> I have no idea. They could have. I read an interesting article that illustrates this idea very well. This article called, Let the Airplane Do the Flying, and I know there's a few pilots among us here. Um, In this article on learning how to fly, this expert flight instructor says, he he was asked a question, what are the two most productive words you can say to a student pilot who's just beginning to learn how to fly an airplane? And he said, it's the simple sentence, let go. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I'm grabbing on with everything I can. He says that if a pilot doesn't learn early in training that an airplane given half a chance will do most of the work once level flight has been established, he or she may be doomed to a career of needless fiddling with the controls, excessive fatigue, and a plane load of reluctant, unhappy, even airsick passengers. It's almost too simple to be true, he writes, but as instructional advice goes, let go can be the best advice some pilots ever receive. Well, one of the most natural instincts and cravings in our soul, in our hearts, is to be in control. It comes naturally for most people. I mean, think for all of us in one sense, because we learn it early on. Often within the first year or so of life, with a few magic words, we will say things like, no, mine, and you grab onto it. In fact, early on, we learn to control our environment and those around us. And it's it's one of the interesting ways that we learn how to do it. We actually learn it. So you ask people why they kind of cry and complain. Because you learn how to do this when you're really, really little, little right? I mean, when you're a baby, that's all you need to know how to do. So you cry, and and if things aren't right down here, you complain, right? An infant is hungry. He cries. Mom picks him up and feeds him. The baby cries, dad checks on her, he can't tell, but as he walks into the room he can actually tell by just the smell of things, it's not good down there. And so he and the baby both cry for mom. Change the baby. You see how it works. Soon the infant is thinking, this crying stuff works really well. I mean, I cry, they jump, right? I mean, it's a learned process. It can become an addictive behavior. So at the youngest age, control becomes quite acceptable and becomes pretty natural because it actually ties into something far deeper in us, and that is our hearts, which um, when we say no to God as well, there's just this natural inclination that just says, I want to fly this plane, control this life, drive this car. This tendency to control, although useful when we're young and immature, God uses that to actually get people to feed and nourish and care for us can be quite dangerous and destructive as you grow older. And Jesus was well aware of our natural tendency to control. And so one of his favorite messages that he delivered in most every town, you have to remember, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He would go from town to town. And and as an itinerant Um, One of the great things that they have over a person like myself who preaches in the same pulpit every week is they get to use different messages or messages that are the same with illustrations that can be the same. And so Jesus was pretty fond of a certain message. You can see that if you read through the Gospels. And it's this idea that um, around this very issue, it's our instinct to save ourselves. It's this addiction to control, our self-centered nature. What we think saves, helps, and frees us actually does, he says just the opposite. It eventually imprisons and hardens and ultimately causes us to perish. Just consider how treacherous it is when someone is drowning, and, and your natural instinct as a person who's drowning is to save yourself, right? It's to do all you can to stay alive. So that when someone actually goes to try and save them, um, they put themselves also in peril. Because when when that person is is saving themselves and they're drowning, they're trying to save themselves, their arms are flying, and they're doing all they can to stay above the water. And if they can grab hold of something, and if it's you who's come in to save them, and they don't just relax and let go, that natural instinct can actually kill them. And since this addiction to control is universal, Jesus delivered this message, I think, again and again everywhere he went because he knew in the heart of man there was this need, this desire to control. There was this, this tendency which is, which is in, our, in, our, in our lower nature, this nature within us to sin. And the context as he would give this message would change from circumstances would be different as he would give it, but the punchline was always the same. Simply whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. That was that was the the basic message. Whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. So Mark eight, verse thirty-five, and some of these verses really beginning of verse thirty-four. The context here is that Jesus 12 to 12 tells the twelve that he must suffer and die. And Peter goes, No way, no way. I'm gonna do and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna use my control to preserve and save and keep you and and Jesus goes, you know what, you won't even do that. You, in fact, disown me as soon as you hear the rooster crow a couple times. And so in verse 34 in Mark 8, when he's giving this message to the disciples, really for the first time, Verse 34, he says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This 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 counter kind of cultural, this new kingdom life, which says it's about it's about letting go and sacrificing and giving up. And then he goes on, he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life and for me and the gospel will save it. And I love the way the message says it, and it paraphrases it this way: calling the crowd. To join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. I'm flying this plane. Let go. And the, flying the plane, let go, wasn't in the paraphrase. I was my ad there. Luke 17 is another context. And Luke gives you this context. Jesus has asked when the kingdom of God is going to come in fullness. When will the fullness of the kingdom come? When will you return and, and set up your rule here on earth? And Jesus tells them that it will come suddenly. and He says that, in fact, it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. People will go about their life thinking they're in control of their destiny. They'll be eating and drinking and going about business as usual. But like the day Lot left Sodom, moments before judgment came on the city, Jesus says in verse 30, Luke 17, it'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. People are going to be going around controlling, think they're in control of their destiny, eating, drinking, going about business as usual. And on that day... No one who is on the housetop with the possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's life. Wife, whoever takes or tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I think it's interesting he uses the word preserve there because in the story of Genesis, Lot's wife looks back to try and hold on to, you know, somehow I'm gonna control take looks back and turns into a pillar of salt, and so you know he says whoever he says, loses their life will preserve it, this preservative power of letting go. And then John 12, another context, Jesus is again preaching in the context that John writes about. Jesus states to them that the hour has come. The time has come for me to be glorified, Jesus says literally Jesus would be lifted up on a cross and he'd be crucified his death would point to the and glorify God it would express the deep love of God that even though we in our sin are separated from him and, and destined towards hell he was going to intervene and he did intervene through Jesus and in this death he actually came and gave life to anyone who was open to receiving it and in receiving this life would then remove sin from us and we'd begin to be directed by him as we let go and let him begin to work in our life and so as he's talking about this Jesus replied in verse 23 the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified it is now time he says in a sense to go to the cross very truly i tell you unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies that's a letting go process it remains only a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds and then verse 25 anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life whoever serves me must follow me and where i am My servant also will be my father, will honor the one who serves me. Isn't that interesting that in all these different contexts, Jesus is giving the same message? And the same message is around this. You know, your ability and your desire, your addiction in a sense to control, which comes from a very young age, which comes really from your actual nature, which is prone to want to hold on to and sin and even put your hand up against God high-handedly. say, I'm going to do this my way. He says, that very thing gets in the very way of the life that I want you to learn to live in the kingdom kind of life. And Jesus in the garden goes through this himself, and he doesn't just preach and teach about it. He doesn't even just pray, Thy will be done, Father, not my will, which is a, a letting go of Jesus himself. He actually walks out his message and does it to the point where he dies on a cross. And he lets go completely. So here's the underlying belief of, of our addiction to control because we're going to get into three points here in just a moment that I want to share with you. But uh, the underlying belief is this. We, we believe falsely that the best way to protect ourselves, find personal satisfaction, and get what we want is to control as much of our world as we can. You get that? I'm not saying that you don't do things to influence, you don't go after goals, or all those things, are, but I'm talking about control that becomes addictive where you begin to, out of anxiety and everything else, to try and get something that you think you need and even manipulate to get towards it. You have to control all of your environment in order to get that. He says, we, here's what it is. It's the belief that falsely the best way to protect ourselves, find personal satisfaction, get what we want, is to control the world around us. And again and again, Jesus taught that that is not the way to the kingdom of life. This will not bring the Spirit of God into your life. If you really want to see the Spirit of God operating in your life, it's not going to happen that way. This will not bring about the full, robust kind of marriage that you want in relationship with another person. This will not result in mature adult children. This kind of life of control will not produce great work environments. This kind of life will not release the Spirit of God in a church community. And the paradox is this, that the harder you seek to control your world and life, the more out of control your world and life becomes. Did you catch that? That's the paradox. The harder you squeeze, the the, the more you move into this instinct to control your world and life, the more out of control your life and world becomes. And it will work for a while. Some people get really good at it. The more gifted you are, the more adept you are at manipulating people and things, the longer you maintain this appearance of control. Jesus says the truth still remains underneath it. Eventually, this veneer of control will fall apart. Your finances will tumble. Your marriage will splinter. Your kids will rebel. Your health will falter. You will actually die. And you will find how little control you actually have. And so God, in a severe kind of mercy, will let you experience brokenness, loss, and pain. Will let your self-centeredness and your sin sometimes bring things to a point where you cry out and you say, I just can't do this anymore. And he says, I never intended for you to. For whoever tries to control his life will eventually lose control of their life, and whoever willingly yields control of their life to God will find their life preserved. So, three things I want to share with you. What are the characteristics of a controlling person? What is it we seek to control, and how do you let go of control? And I'm going to work through these characteristics quickly. What are the characteristics of a controlling person? And what I want to have you do for just a moment is to ask this question, who is a controlling person? Because the tendency is going to begin to be thinking of someone else, okay? Because immediately you're going to want to try and go, yeah, that's that person. How do I, you know, that's the controlling addict in my life. Because here's what I want you to ask for a question. Could you be sitting next to a controlling person? Are you dating a controller? Did a controlling parent raise you? Are you raising a little controlling three-year-old? Do you work for a controlling person? And here's the thing I want you to ask. Are you a controlling person? and what degree are you? Okay, so I want you to focus in on yourself. Because what comes to mind usually when you think of controlling addicts or controlling people, you think of the type A person who's powerful, aggressive, driving, intense, competitive, domineering, right? But that's not the case. Even the type B person that's kind of sweet and passive can be very manipulative. I've actually found it's not just type A and type Bs, it's type C, Ds, E,s, F, and G personality types. I don't even know there's that many, but I'm just making this up. Anyway, Jesus was speaking to everybody when he gave this message. The Bible says Jesus turned to the crowd and he gathered around him and he said, i got to share with you something really, really important. Your natural tendency to control is going to actually up causing a lot of things messed up in your life. And so here are some characteristics. One is that usually when you, when you find uh, the controlling kind of pattern in your life, you'll find that performance becomes more important than relationship. Very simple thing. Performance beca- the common tendency is to stress performance over relationship. Just think of the work world. It's a perfect. The marketplace is a good place because agendas, plans, bottom lines take priority over people's needs and well-being often. It's not the best work environment, but that's what takes place. It takes place often in, in, a, in a parenting situation. What's really important is how the kid looks, not what's going on in their heart. Performance becomes far more important than relationship. How you perform and what you do is important. The next thing is, I want just share with you, another character, is compliance over creativity. Human uniformity becomes far more important than, than the unity, which is, is aligned through a diversity towards a mission. The mission is one thing. And, and I just look at this in, in the way that we, even in the church, can operate. Because often what we, we grow up with certain thoughts. And here's, a, here's something. There's a generation now that kind of dresses in a very relaxed fashion, right? Now there, there's some of you going, yes, yeah, way too relaxed, right? But part of the generation in, in, in their motivation is they, they've come out of a place where they they don't want, it's not about performance, they want to just show up and they want authenticity, they want genuineness, they want to to be in relationship with the heart. That's a really good thing. Right, but on the other side of the token, there are people who come and they, they come dressed up and they're looking, you know, they're, they're dressed to the to the nines, as they say, and, in, and, and they come to church not because they're trying to impress anyone with their with the way they look, but they come because this is what you do before God. You give your best, right? Which one's wrong? Which one's right? Neither of them. There is this sense where when people come together, they come together and, and there's different things that are motivating and developing, and there's a creativity that it moves away from a compliance. One author said, people need first to believe that you are willing to let them be who they are. If you attempt to direct another person's every move, you eventually lose your effectiveness no matter how correct you may be. Freedom for each of us to be who and what we are. That's the cornerstone of an influential life. Another thing is duty versus passion. Commitments become obligations of duty rather than investments with passion when duty is the motivation relationships become oughts and shoulds and relationships lose their joy and become filled with dread and resentment every every relationship at times has to move into duty but if you're in a situation where it's all about duty and, and all it is, is is you're just in your relationship even with God you're checking off like I read the Bible I go to church and you're checking off the oughts and the shoulds because there's a duty um, you're living Paul at one point in Philippians says man I, ha- I live that kind of life I-, I don't want to live that life any longer I want to be in a relationship with a God that I'm just passionate 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 about. In fact, I consider all that, not that this isn't good, but this is not. This is really what becomes practices, ways of forming your heart so you love God more. And so, duty versus passion is another, is what I call competency versus vulnerability. Competency is a very good thing, but it's natural for every one of us to gloss over our weaknesses. If we have a tendency to control, we actually go one step further. Here's something, a characteristic. You go one step further. You deeply desire for everyone to see you as having no flaws. Because you're trying to control what people see and think about who you are. In fact, the really crafty among us who can manipulate really well can actually use vulnerability. It'd be very easy to use vulnerability in such a way that you look weak in order to still control. I mean, the game can be played at so many levels. And when it comes to competency versus vulnerability, they really don't need to be at odds, but sometimes when one takes precedence over the other, in fact, none of these should in one sense be fully at odds, but vulnerability is avoided at all costs. Brokenness, helplessness, powerlessness is avoided. In this place where God can become most real and visible and available to us, the person who's addicted to control wants to make sure they can hide and protect themselves around a veneer that things are the way they want you to see them. And Jesus preaches again and again, that's not what I meant, that's not how life works. I think that's why Jesus, whenever he preached, would go from place to place and he said, let go, give up kind of community that I'm creating isn't one that naturally works out of our instincts it's a supernatural one that is birthed by a spirit that comes and shows themselves like little children that says here's who I am with this sense of just vulnerable sincere relationship so let me ask you this if if that's kind of what what are some of the characteristics what is it that you and I seek to control have you ever thought about that what is it you seek to control Jesus sums it up with these words, your life. Again, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. He says insist on saving your life and you'll lose it. I think Jesus is basically saying whatever we care most about, whatever has our heart, whatever we think we need most to live, that is what we seek to control. Whatever you have the most whatever seems to be most meaningful to you, is what you will have the greatest tendency to grab hold of. You will control what is most important to you. That, just simply, that's what he means by your life. The more meaningful something is, the greater you will attempt to control it. You will watch it, constantly check it, spend lots of energy around it, and do all you can to protect it. So, for instance, if something is really important to you, like your finances and, and your investments, how many times do you check the stock market? Maybe it's kind of a thought. You 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 really go you look at things that are important to you. And to some degree things that are important sometimes become the very things that that as you seek to control, they begin to control you. How many go out for a night and and you and you have to call back to the babysitter every few minutes? How many can't go anywhere without your smartphone? How many keep looking at the clock because time is really important to you? They're obviously important, maybe an area where you're tempted not only to control, but to be controlled by. And God says, I never intended for you to be controlled by anything but my spirit. For instance, controlling a child's behavior. One of the reasons a parent may desperately seek to control their child's behavior is because sometimes our sense of identity gets wrapped up. Up in that child. So like at a sports event, you know, a dad wants their kid to do incredibly well because they want their kid to do well because it reflects on them because they want it. You know what I mean? Your identity gets wrapped up in maybe what your child is doing. It becomes so important to you. You'll naturally end up trying to, to conform their behavior, bring about compliance, all these kind of things so that they look in a certain way and to act in a certain way. And if your sense of identity is too firmly wrapped up in how they behave and what others might think, of you because of them you will naturally end up being more concerned about how they look on the outside rather than what is going on in the inside and then behavior becomes the focus not the heart and appearance becomes more important than reality happens in homes it happens in churches it happens all over and you know what I find is interesting in in homes I, I kinda watch this you can watch it in your own own heart, a person may actually rebel in order to break hold of the control so that you will see the inside, the heart, where they want to be known and loved. Sometimes kids rebel so that the outside reflects what's going on within because we're not seeing it. So here's an interesting truth to be aware of. Pay attention to your anxiety level. When you talk about what you're trying to control, when you talk about your life and what's really important to you, I want you to think about this for a second. Pay attention to your anxiety level. Watch your anger in situations, and you will see your need to control rise at the same time. Thomas Shoemaker makes this comment. Deep down, people are terrified of being vulnerable. We believe we can protect ourselves by staying in control when we tend to be riddled with anxiety, fear, insecurity, and anger. Catch that. Those emotional things. We seek to control other people as a way of warding off our own fear of being out of control and helpless. This is really good stuff. Controlling is an anxiety management tool. So what happens sometimes with regard to control, seeking to save your life, what you find is things in here are going out of control with regard to your emotions. And so in order to kind of manage those emotions, you try and control what's going on out here. So that goes down. He says, the need to control is almost always fueled by anxiety, though seldom does a controlling person recognize their fears. At work, anxiety rises in the face of failure. In relationship, fear and anger rises when we believe our needs are not being met. Anybody been there? As anxiety and fear grows, so does our need to control So I want to encourage you, as you think about what it is that you seek to control, you might be seeking to control something very important to yourself out here. In fact, when you think about it, you pay attention to your fear level. If you look at the dashboard of your life, there's an anxiety indicator and there's an anger indicator. Watch those things because if they start getting into the red, you'll start to find yourself wanting probably to control something out here. And what might be really going on is something in here that you're seeking to manage. You know, anger is really only something that shows that what you're really committed to, right? That's, that's, in a sense, anger is energy around something you're really committed to. And what I find, there's righteous anger in the Bible, and you can see it in Jesus, but most of us don't have a lot of righteous anger. There are times we're really committed to something outside ourselves in order to protect, in order for something not to be abused, but most often it's about what's going on in here, and we will do all that we can to to make this be what it should be so that we are really controlling what's going on here. And Jesus says, when I find this in my life, these last number of years in my life as I've been watching this and, and I find fear and anxiety growing and I find myself getting angry, I look at those, those indicator levels and I go, man, this is an incredible opportunity for me to look inward and go, God, i got to let go. i got to trust you. doesn't mean you don't do the best you can do in these situations you may be in, but it's, you just at a certain point you go, I'll do the best I can and I just let it go. Because it's not my job through something out here to control my anxiety or to try and remove my anger. It's my job just to do what I'm called to do in relationship to what God is calling me to do. And then I say, God, it's up to you to to begin to take care of this out here. Does that resonate with anybody? This is what Jesus seems to be talking about. He's talking about this idea of, of letting go, losing your life. In me, So you'll find li- a life you, you never believed could exist. You can actually learn to live with love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. You actually are monitored by these emotional things within because you're connected to a God here. You're not trying to do things out here in order to, in some way, manage your anxiety so that your kids look just right, that manage your anxieties. You, you, know, you bring them up in the way that you should and you teach them the things you should, but at a certain point you go, you know what, I'm learning as a parent. That I started in a directive kind of controlling way which we all need to do and over time you begin to become less of a director and controller and eventually you become a coach and if you're really lucky as a parent sometimes when they're in their 20s they'll let you be a consultant, right? So how do you let go of control? What I love about Jesus is he never gives three easy steps or five quick ways to overcome an addiction or something like that. But he does say, pay attention to how I'm at work in your life. Pay attention to your life. So I'm going to just share with you four things real quickly. Through everyday insights, you can pay attention to your life. You can welcome these moments as gifts from God rather than things you have to get upset about and fight. In a parent-child relationship, You learn the lesson of letting go. The whole process of becoming a parent and having kids is God's great gift to you to learn how to let go. I had someone share with me when we were were young as parents. They told me this wise thing. They said, letting go of your children isn't something you do, Kevin, when they graduate from high school. It's something you learn to do the day they're born. So, we dedicate children. We dedicated 10 just a few weeks ago. We're going to be dedicating five more here in a couple of weeks. And, and, and uh, so, be careful of the water you drink around here. But anyway, um, as parents, you come and you say, This is your child. And we do this kind of dedication act. But throughout your life, you begin to learn to say, This is your child. I'm going to care for this. I'm going to do all I can for this child. But yet, I'm going to recognize that part of my process is learning this lesson of letting go. Moving away from controlling and paying attention, not just to their behavior, but going, God, what's going on in the heart? Learning how to let them express their life and their creativity and become who God called them to be. There's also this whole idea of aging. So some of you who are getting older, anybody here getting older? um, You should all be raising your hands. Anyway, it is one of the greatest opportunities in life to learn to let go. Did you know that? You see, we all come into this life with what? Nothing. And we all leave this life with what? Now there's this process in between where we start to learn how to get hold of things and we grab hold of things and we begin to start getting our life. And some people learn to live their life addicted that they're going to control, grab, get more, 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 more. And eventually they start to realize if they pay attention to this wonderful process that God allows many of us to go through of aging, it's all a process where you start downsizing, letting go. But you don't have to let go of things with your heart. You can do this physically. Physically. But if you pay attention, it's God's way of teaching us in our heart and soul how to give up, to let go, to trust. So my hearing isn't too good, and that bums me out. And, and I, I've been, you know, I, I try and do things, you know, my, my 20-year-old mind tries to do things with my body that it can't cash at some 50 years of age. Anybody found that to be true? I remember about a year ago, I was trying to water ski, and I hadn't been up a ski, and I thought I could do all this stuff I did younger, and I just came away going, what am I trying? I, you have to learn in this process of letting go. So as you get older, it's really easy to do this, to become really anxious and upset, and look at all oh, that our world is going to, and live in this kind of realm where you're constantly upset, which I don't think does good things for kids who are younger. The God who is full of hope and goodness and will do the things and protect and care for. But you can get in this place and then you can become angry because technology is changing. You know, the, the culture around us is changing. The church, even the place that I was coming, that's changing. And you can move to a place where in your soul you're grabbing on to when God could be trying to teach you the one thing that's really important when you stand in his presence and you go, here I am. This is me and I'm going to let go and grab onto the things that you're doing right now in my life. So there's this whole idea of parenting and aging and then there's this whole sense when trials come into your life and don't you love suffering and trials whether it's an illness a flat tire a flooded basement they're all reminders that we're what? Not in control. I received a note from a friend who has given horrible news. He has what is called nuclear cataracts. Instead of moving from the inside, from the outside of the lens into the in part of the eye, these actually begin in the center of the lens and move outward. And on top of that, he has a bunch of other difficulties now with his eyes. He writes this, It is a very sobering moment when doctors tell you that you have a serious problem with your eyesight. It's even more sobering when a leading specialist tells you that yours is the worst case he's ever seen. I love these words. Nevertheless, I have absolute and complete peace as far as my soul and spirit are concerned. I am adjusting to the fact that I am no longer in control of what I thought I was in control of before. And then there's defeat, and some of you may be in that place today. Maybe you've experienced a huge blow. And God will sometimes allow our lives to unravel and unwind. We experience an event, we receive news, and it puts our life in a free fall where all you can do is say, God help. He may allow you to experience a defeat, a loss, a deep testing that has caused a brokenness right now where you're at, where you're sitting, you're feeling it, you know it, and God is here today saying, guess what? I love you. Just let go and let me work in this situation. I will be with you. I will give you peace. Sometimes out of deep love, God will allow things that are most meaningful to us that we hold on to with the most control become unmanageable and and unattainable. Because he loves you so deeply. I'm going to close with this quote from George MacDonald. And I want you to hear this because I think this is such a wonderful statement. Now I'm going to read it and you're not going to get it. So it's one of these things uh, because I I say this unless you're, you know, I shouldn't say this. Some of you are so bright. You'll get it right away. God is easily pleased but not easily satisfied, writes George MacDonald. And they're profound words. You really got to think about it and digest it. God is easily pleased but not easily satisfied. Think about it in your life. God is easily pleased but not not necessarily always satisfied. Think of the thrill of a child's first step. As a parent, you're thrilled when your child takes these first steps. You know, they kind of stumble along and, and you're just pleased. You're just smiling. It's really a good thing. You're easily pleased. But let's just think it's 20 years later and his child is before you, and they're still stumbling in the same way. You wouldn't be satisfied, right? I got to tell you that God is so pleased with you as you take your first steps and you walk with the Lord and some of you have done it. But you know what is so interesting about God and what Jesus has to say here is that he may be pleased and he sees you as you take these steps of faith, as you take these steps of faith, but he's not satisfied because what he's going to be satisfied is that each and every one of us someday at the end of our life are filled with the character of Christ. We become like Him. We are full of love. We are full of joy. We are full of peace. We are full of patience and goodness and kindness and and, and all these wonderful things of faithfulness. You're dependable. And we get to do that now. We get to learn how to walk with Jesus, not stumble along, because God isn't easily pleased in that sense. He's easily pleased because he sees those first steps, but he's not easily satisfied. He is longing for each and every one. He's longing for this church, this body, to move into the kind of maturity that will set people free. Amen. A body doesn't do it unless individuals begin to walk in it. He is pleased with you. He loves you. He loves the fact you love him. But he will not be satisfied until you begin to walk in faith and you begin to move in him. And as we begin to move in him, he will do incredible things to us. Mm -hmm. He wants us to get over approval addictions. He wants us to get over these control addictions. He's going to want us to get over some of these other addictions we're going to be talking about because God has a plan for you and for us. And I just want to invite you today. I wasn't planning to do this. This is, I believe, God's Spirit saying. If you individually, you want to do this corporately, I don't want you to stand, and I don't want to do something that causes us to move into approval addictions. So I'm going to ask you to do something before the Lord. And in your heart and your mind, you just open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I today am going to ask you to move me to a place day in and day out where I grow in you so that someday as I move, you will be so satisfied because of the work you've done through me. If that's in your heart, just with your head bowed just in this moment, if that's in your heart, would you just tell them that? He's waiting for a person to do that. He's waiting for a people to do that. He's waiting for some churches in this area, not just ours. I'm sure he would love every church and every people in this area to do that. We pray for the nation. The nation will change when we change, when we get serious about this. And we say, Jesus, it is not about the things that I want. It's not about my own selfish things. I want to set that aside. As your pastor, I want to set that aside. I pray that for you, that we will be after one thing and one thing only. Our mission is to know, follow, and become like Jesus so that he will be fully satisfied.